Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, August 28, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. We're going to take next week off for Labor Day, and then Kishore Hari will be back with me in September. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. We find ourselves at the end of August, in the dog days of summer, in a month that probably should have been a banner month for science, at least in the U.S., with a total eclipse and a hurricane that's on track to be one of the costliest disasters ever in the history of the country. And yet science hasn't hijacked the headlines as much as we would like. In addition to these major environmental events, we also have a wild political ride that we've all been on for what feels like many months. So this week, instead of interviewing a scientist, I decided to turn to an artist to see if where scientists have trouble being heard, is there a way that artists can get their message across more effectively? To that end, I turned to Jonathan Lynn, who has directed 10 feature films, including the cult classic Clue, he also wrote the screenplay, and Nuns on the Run, which is one of my favorite movies, My Cousin Finney, and many more. In television, Jonathan's writing credits include dozens of episodes of various comedy series, but he's best known for the phenomenally successful multi-award-winning BBC series Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, which was co-written and created with Anthony Jay. He's also authored best-selling books and has worked in the theater, including both directing and writing plays, and he's won numerous awards for his work. And Jonathan's work isn't just limited to the arts. His work has influenced lawyers and governments, and his latest book, Samaritans, tackles healthcare. And full disclosure, Jonathan is not only one of my dearest friends, but also we have worked together in the past. Over the past few years, Jonathan has been shocked by how healthcare is run in the U.S. And of course, this is a topic that is very much in the minds of many Americans today. So he wrote a satirical novel in which a hospital is taken over by a Vegas casino manager. One of the things I love about Jonathan's work is that it's not only funny and truthful and interesting, but it is also rooted with a deep love of thinking and research. Jonathan Lynn, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. 
So a lot of our listeners will know of your work from your films, My Cousin Vinny and Nuns on the Run and Clue. Um, But now we want to talk about a novel that you wrote. So what made you decide to tackle a novel rather than make another film? Well, uh, it's actually not my first novel. I think it's my sixth book and my probably my fifth novel. The last one I wrote was, well, a long time ago, I must say. Um, I wrote the last one I wrote was just after my cousin Vinny, um, and that was a novel about Los Angeles. And this time I wanted to write about the the healthcare system in America, which is, as a Brit coming here, is I find uh, utterly astonishing, because my view of things tends to be ironic. Uh, I find it rather funny. I mean, terrible, but funny. And anyway, I think writing a funny book is a is a writing comedy generally is a better way to make ideas and paradoxes accessible to people. So I decided to write as a novel because somehow the subject was too big to fit into a screenplay. A screenplay is uh, 120 pages long and it's very brief and there's lots of stuff that isn't said because it's going to be filled in by the. The, the visuals that the camera provides, or by what the um, by the casting and how the actors play it, and I wanted to have a, a big cast, and I wanted to go into the what all of these people are like in, in some way, and uh, so it just seemed that what I had to say was bigger than I could see how to fit into a screenplay, um, and because it has a sort of definitive ending. I didn't really want it to be a TV series because nobody wants to make a TV series unless they can drag it out forever. Um, so it seemed to me that the novel was the way to go. And, you know, on this show, we usually talk to scientists about how they want to change society. And for this topic, uh, I actually agree with you. I think, I think I'm already presupposing what you might say, that we need art uh, to help us tackle this, you know, tackle healthcare and our problems, uh, in addition to the science, because there's lots of science out there that seems to be ignored. Um, so let's start with well, this, a kind of... at the moment, America is, is making um, a fetish out of ignoring science. I mean, that's what's happening with climate change and with the, you know, the EPA and with, I mean, everything. I mean, uh, the, the current political climate here is anti-science. Yeah. And in some ways, though, it's easier to ignore climate science, but hard to ignore healthcare when it happens to everyone in such a personal way. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the thing that the, the reason why healthcare is, is something that I think everyone is interested in, or certainly anyone over the age of 40 is interested in, um, because it really affects you personally. I mean, sooner or later, everybody is going to need healthcare. Sooner or later, everybody needs a doctor, and sooner or later, most people need a hospital. It's so timely for this book to come out now, given all of the things that have happened, uh, the the debates in in, uh, Congress and in the Senate about what healthcare should look like. Well, yes, but it seems sort of um, as, as though I've been rather perceptive or prophetic about the future, but in fact, one could see it all coming. I mean, the healthcare system here is disastrous and has been for a long time. Hillary Clinton tried to change it in the 
90s. People have been trying to go for what they call here Medicare for all and what most countries call universal health care um, for, you know, half a century. And um, when the Affordable Care Act came in, which was Obamacare, known as Obamacare, had still left about 27 million people uninsured. 27 million people, that's a colossal number of people. And many of those who have insurance still can't afford medical care because they can't afford the high deductibles or the co-pays or, you know, all the other attendant problems that come even if you have insurance. Um, so it didn't take prophetic skills to see that, that this was all going to, going to come to a climax. And indeed it has done. So that goes against so much of the kind of public perception in the U.S. of healthcare, And I've kind of watched this shift happen uh, in the last few years of people starting to maybe think that America does not have the best healthcare in the world. Um, <laughs> it's funny you should say that. I could give you the statistics <laughs> on that. Yes, the, please do. The World Health Organization rates U.S. healthcare 38th best in the world behind Colombia and Saudi Arabia, and just above Cuba. Way behind Colombia and Saudi Arabia, which are rated 22nd and 26th, for instance, and Cuba is a little above America. America's rated 38th best. America is 25th among the developed industrialized nations of keeping babies alive or their mothers alive. The infant mortality rate here is shocking. And... Then, you know, on a personal level, um, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States is medical debt. Now, anyone who imagines that the healthcare system is all right with those statistics, you know, <laughs> needs their head examined. Um, and, and, um, uh, you know, it's 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 not it's not just it's not just those numbers. It's the fact that there are so many people who just can't afford health insurance and can't afford health care even if they have insurance. So what health, what the American healthcare system really is, is extremely good for the wealthy and quite atrocious for everybody else. Is that really true? I mean, you know, in, in terms of I, I, we have great health insurance and my experiences have been okay in the US, certainly not better or much worse than my experiences in Canada. And yet there's just this notion that the Canadian system is totally broken. The British system is horrible. And, you know, we're just not, it, it, that hasn't been my experience, but I wonder if there's any, if there are any numbers about that, you know, about, is it, if you, you know, how rich do you have to be in the U S to have high quality care? And then is it the best in the world or is it simply as good as other countries? I think it's probably better than than other developed countries for people who can afford the best medical care. It's it's very good for people who can afford the best. Um, in terms of other countries, I don't know much about Canada, but uh, I I do know that statistically it figures much better. And these these ratings are not done by biased organizations. The World Health Organization is not anti-American. You know, it's the CIA World ha World Factbook, actually, that gives the ranking of infant mortality in countries around the world. The CIA World Factbook 
gives the U.S. a worse rating on infant mortality. It lists the USA as 56th best out of 225 countries. So I, I don't know about Canada. I'm sure it's better. I do know that in Britain, the health care system has its problems because Britain, like uh, America, uh, has conservative government um, committed to austerity and ideologically committed to making government smaller. And that, that was the way, actually, under Tony Blair's so-called New Labour government, um, and is certainly was the case under Cameron and now under Mrs May. And the health service in Britain is being starved of funds, and the quality of care in some regions in Britain is poor. But it's still available to everybody, uh, it's less good than it should be, and it's much less good than it has been. But that's not because universal health care doesn't work. It's because universal health care does cost money. So the question is, who, who's going to who's going to foot the bill? Is it going to be the taxpayer, which is what conservatives in Britain and America and elsewhere think should not be the case, or or, or is it going to be insurance companies? who add one-third of the cost to insurance. American insurance costs one-third more than any European developed country. I don't know about Canada, but I think that's also true. And that one-third is simply insurance company and pharmaceutical company profit. And what my book, Samaritans, questions um, is whether or not the business school model is the right approach for healthcare. Uh, you know, everything that the, the business schools teach their graduates, if, well, the first thing they teach their graduates is that the interests of the shareholders are paramount. Um, in the case of pharmaceuticals and hospitals, there are shareholders. These hospitals are private. Uh, and uh, even if they're non-profits, they, they're private. And they make serious profits. The non-profits make serious profits too. They just are supposed to uh, plow it back into the hospital system. But um, there's an enormous amount of money of overcharging uh, and corruption. Uh, and nothing is done about it by the authorities here because they believe everything should be outsourced and everything should be smaller government. So, for instance, you've got laws here which prevent uh, U.S. citizens buying drugs from Canada. Now, they're the same drugs. A lot of U.S. drugs, U.S. marketed drugs, are actually made in Canada. They're certainly the same. And nonsense is talked about how, you know, for the safety of the American public... Uh, you know, we 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 can't import American drugs, uh, Canadian drugs. That that's absolute nonsense. And so, what happens is that ca Canadians pay vastly less for precisely the same drugs as Americans pay. And under the Bush government, a deal was made that that insurance companies and patients cannot negotiate with the pharmaceuticals. They have to accept their prices. And pharmaceuticals are infinitely more expensive here than in Europe, and unnecessarily so. 
you know, some of these topics, especially just in terms of universal access to healthcare, have recently hit the headlines and have been things that, you know, obviously the government has been talking about and thinking about without an ability to solve. So what made you decide to use satire as a way to kind of like, you know, how, how is satire effective in, in getting people to change their minds when, you know, it seems like in our government and in, you know, in the opinions of so many people, despite the statistics, despite people's experiences, there's still this um, misconceived notion that healthcare is somehow great in the U.S. Um, how is satire effective? Nobody knows if satire is effective. I mean, was 1984 effective against Stalin? No, probably. It just made people understand Stalinism better. Um, I don't know that uh, Dr. Strangelove, one of the great satirical movies, was effective. Um, it doesn't it hasn't reduced the U.S. nuclear arsenal and it hasn't prevented nuclear proliferation. So do I think satire actually achieves anything? No. <laughs> um, thank you for pointing out that I'm wasting my life. Uh, um, but uh, I think it makes many people understand more clearly and because it's funny um, more accessibly uh, what is wrong with the system? And perhaps over a period of time, it's one of um, many things that eventually forces a change in the climate of opinion and then eventually in the political process. But, you know, if, if, if you ask, you know, Stephen Colbert or John Stewart or, or Seth Meyers or, you know, Conan... O'Brien, any of these people, you know, is the satire they do on television every night effective? Well, probably not. Uh, what it does is it 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 speaks to the people who already more or less share those views. Uh, and does it get through to, to many people who watch Fox News? Perhaps not. Um, but I do think you have a better chance of changing people's minds if you can make them laugh. I think laughter unifies people. I think it brings people together. It shows absurdity. It shows hypocrisy. It shows uh, it shows what's wrong in a way that's entertaining as opposed to preachy. I mean, what I've been doing on this podcast for the last 20 minutes is essentially moaning about what's wrong with the healthcare system here. But my book is much more entertaining than I am. And, and uh, I think it will. It makes people laugh what's going on. I think it makes them scared too. Um, but I do think it makes them laugh and I think it makes them intrigued with the characters. And I think all of that helps to create a climate of opinion. But finally, does any work of art change anything? I don't think so. I mean, Bertolt Brecht always said that there was no play in the world that's ever changed any events, ever, never made a change in society. Of course not. Art doesn't do that. Most political events don't do that. Very few politicians manage to affect a change. Change is slow and difficult. And in this country, it's entrenched by, you know, big money interests. 
Yeah. And I mean, that that gets us to a little bit more of the detail in your book. You know, we, we have been talking in the abstract about what the book is about, but I think our listeners would be interested to know sort of exactly what the premise is. So, um, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, a, a synopsis of the story or the main characters um, and give us a sense of, of how, you know, the, the kind of world that you've built in that novel. The the book is set in Samaritan's Medical Center, which is a hospital in Washington, D.C., which, like many hospitals, is beset by poor management and rising costs and desperate to do something about the fact that they're falling apart financially. They hire as their new CEO, the head of hotel operations of a Vegas casino, a man called Max Green. And uh, they hire him because he knows all about check-in and check-out, bed occupancy, dinner served, and he has absolutely no interest in healthcare. But he does understand that the interests of the shareholders are paramount, and he does understand that uh, he does see that there's a way to make potentially a huge profit out of not just one hospital, but if he can start it with one hospital and then get a chain of hospitals going and this is a this is a prospect uh, that can make billions, as indeed it has done for several big hospital chains in the United States. It's all about how running a hospital for profit can lead, finally, to a different sort of catastrophe, to a, a moral catastrophe. And I'm not going to tell you the ending, but suffice to say that Max Green is a kind of young Donald Trump. And really, the hospital is an allegory for the United States. And, you know, perhaps when you first came up with the idea of a, you know, Vegas casino manager running a hospital, it seemed outrageous, but it sounds as if life is starting to imitate art. Uh, in, a, in a Guardian piece, you wrote about Gary Loveman, who is the CEO of a bankrupt Vegas casino, Caesars Palace, recently appointed by Aetna, which is one of the U.S.'s, you know, big insurance providers to run its health insurance division. That's right. I couldn't believe my eyes when I read that. I was about halfway through writing the book at that point. And I thought, I just can't believe it. You know, this is, um, it's be, it's beyond parody. Uh, but then, you know, if you look at it from the other point of view, healthcare is the ultimate lottery. So who better to run a hospital? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's so many of your, uh, so so many, uh, so much of your work, I should say, uh, you know, is, it has been relevant even decades after it was first presented or written. Um, you know, one great example is Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, or, or you know, My Cousin Vinny, which still serve as educational tools at law schools, you know, here and in and and um, in the UK and elsewhere. So. How does that make you feel or what, you know, what, what does that tell us about sort of, you know, these fundamental ideas that keep coming back? Are we just not learning from our mistakes or, you know, is there just some truth uh, that, that continues to repeat itself? Yes, yes and yes, I would say. In other words, it makes me happy that people still enjoy what, what I've written and directed and find them relevant um, and it makes me sad that in a way that they are still relevant in that sense. I, you always want what you write to be remain relevant in human terms. And for instance, my cousin Vinny, you know, I think you know it's a it's a wonderful script. I didn't write it. Dale Lorna wrote it. I directed it. Um, and those characters, Vinny and 
Mona Lisa Vito and those other, the other characters of the movie are, are wonderfully written characters and they were played beautifully by the cast. And I think they would remain interesting no matter what, even if, even if things changed. But the fact is that Michael and Vinnie is, among other things, a statement against capital punishment. Uh, you know, these, those two boys would have been fried if they hadn't had a peculiarly aggressive, belligerent, uh, argumentative lawyer. And uh, he won the case. So, you know, you could view it as a triumph of American justice, but actually, no. Um, what it is is a very narrow escape from from death. The film remains completely relevant in terms of the the legalities, and it's it's uh, it, it is used in law schools up and down the country. And uh, I have actually had the honor of addressing conventions of federal judges. Uh, <laughs> it's rather absurd, but uh, they take the view that it's the the only Hollywood film ever made that has a, a completely accurate account of what goes on in court. Um, yes, Prime Minister and Yes Minister, they were part of the British government, and uh, sadly, nearly everything in, in those uh, programs remains true. Uh, so... Although I'm pleased that they survive and people watch them constantly, uh, of course it's sad that what we were satirizing hasn't changed. It takes me back to the question you asked me a while back about how, is satire effective in changing anything? Uh, I made a film called The Distinguished Gentleman here with Eddie Murphy, which was about the power of the lobbyists to corrupt Congress. And, you know, when Bill Clinton saw it shortly after he was elected, he said that's how it is in Washington. Well, it hasn't got any better, let's face it. Uh, but, you know, um, art can't change that. Art can merely criticize and illuminate. And, you know, uh, art is criticism of life. And satire is criticism of life by ridicule. And I think that's... Necessary, I think it's part of the whole democratic process. Given how the political events have taken a turn towards the satirical and the absurd, um, does that change the kind of writing that you would do in the future if you were asked to write another political series or um, movie? You know, I read a review of, of this book of mine, Samaritans, which said nobody would have believed this book 10 years ago. Now it's completely believable. Uh, and it might be happening. Now, the truth is they should have believed it 10 years ago, and yes, it is. it remains believable, and it is all happening. Not quite the way I've written it in the book, where things are maybe slightly heightened for comic effect, but not very much. Uh, you know, the specific corruption that Max and his people get up to in the book is is fictional, but the Healthcare Corporation of America which was run by Rick Scott, was fined or reached both civil and criminal settlements for nearly $2 billion. And now the same company, although Rick Scott left, uh, is worth $33 billion. Um, after paying, after pleading guilty to 14 felony charges, um, and Rick Scott, who ran that company, is now governor of Florida. 
So uh, you don't have to be imaginative or a satirist to to invent these outlandish scenarios. You know, Will Rogers, the great American comedian Will Rogers in the 30s, said there's no trick to being a humorist when you've got the whole government working for you. And he was right. Yeah, I think I think a lot of uh, late night uh, TV show hosts shed a bit of a tear when uh, the booch was ousted so quickly. Oh yes, that was a that was a tragedy for for comedians and comedy writers. Well, on that note, I want to remind our listeners that Jonathan Lynn's new novel Samaritans is available on Amazon, both as an ebook and as a paperback. Jonathan Lynn, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. After our interview, Jonathan sent me a quote via email. Art never stopped a war and never got anybody a job. That was never its function. Art cannot change events, but it can change people. It can affect people so that they are changed. Because people are changed by art, enriched, ennobled, encouraged. They can act in a way that may affect the course of events, by the way they vote, they behave, the way they think. From Leonard Bernstein. Thanks, Jonathan. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration and partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rehan Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you in two weeks. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, Trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.